Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews 13. Wow, what a, what a worship service this morning. So thankful for the richness, of the truth, of the songs that we have sung, affirming the gospel, reflecting on Christ, encouraging our hearts, drawing us into worship and in spirit and in truth. I hope that that reality has come to fruition this morning in your own life. The fact of the matter is, as we can plan and we can put songs together and we certainly can sing them, but I wonder individually before the Lord, um, are you worshiping Him and the beauty of His holiness? I pray that as we have gone through that order of service, that structure of worship, guiding us through a, a time of worship through song and worship through scripture reading, worship through confession, certainly worship through even receiving the word of God as it is preached this morning. I, I pray that we have worshiped the Lord. We have two more Sundays in the book of Hebrews, and again, just to give you some insight into where we're headed, we'll, we'll be finishing up the, the preaching portion of Hebrews next Sunday as we, we close out chapter 13. Uh, the following Sunday, February 18th, we're excited to uh, just linger in all that God has done through His Word in the book of Hebrews, and we will have a uh, a fifth Sunday service on a non-fifth Sunday. I hope you're okay with that. Uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna break out of that routine, and we're just gonna have an opportunity to gather as a church. We'll have a breakfast before uh, the service, as we we typically do. We'll fellowship just to be together, encourage each other in the Lord, and then we'll we'll transition back up here to the sanctuary. Have a time to just remember all that God has done through His Word and. Certainly a time to pray for one another, encourage one another as well, just to give testimony to the truth of God's word um, as we, we look forward to transitioning to a new series. So February 18th, uh, come be a part of that fellowship, uh, bring a, a breakfast item uh, to share, and that's always just a, a favorite time here at Liberty Hills. And then uh, on the 25th, the, the final Sunday in the month of February, uh, we're going to have Andrew Parker come and preach a standalone communion uh, message for us, just, just to linger in the gospel and to uh, look at Christ uh, for all he is and, and just remember that uh, what communion is and what it means for us as believers. And so excited to open up the pulpit to Andrew and uh, be praying for him as he prepares over the next few weeks as well. And then uh, the first week in March, we'll be kicking off our new series uh, in the book of Colossians. And so uh, enough announcements uh, for this morning. Let's go ahead and just open in a word of prayer. Ask God to quiet our hearts and quiet our minds, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see uh, Christ this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love towards us. What beautiful, rich songs we have sung this morning. We have heard your word 
read publicly, even in that, that psalm, to declare to the next generation who God is. That's what we do week in and week out. That's why we, we affirm family worship. That's why we have, we have kids right here with us right now for the preaching of your word. God, I pray as your word is opened up and as we hear it preached, I pray that you would draw all men to yourself. Pray that we would see Christ and him lifted up. God, I pray for the one who is doubting. Doubting who Christ is, doubting the gospel, doubting your love wrestling with your sovereign plan as they feel the tension of present circumstances. I pray that pray that they would be encouraged, that you would fortify their faith in you by grace. God, I pray that you would help our unbelief this morning. That as we see Christ, we would recognize and respond to him rightly as a Savior and Lord over our life. So God, I pray that you would do a work that I cannot do. Change us, mold us, shape us into Christ's likeness this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews 13, Pastor Dave read verses 8 through 16 already this morning. I will no doubt reference these verses um, in part, but we won't read them in, in whole again for sake of time. But on the, on the hills of this challenge to consider a better love in a myriad of different ways and different applications, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the author closes out that paragraph with a call to remember those leaders who spoke to you the word of God, to consider their way of life and to imitate their faith. And then he, he closes in verse number eight with this concrete truth that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Hebrews chapter number 13, Verse number 17, we're going to see another call to consider your leaders. But between those, those bookends of admonitions and challenges to relate to leaders uh, rightly through the gospel and love, we have some teaching here in the middle that the author wants to give one more challenge, one more admonition to consider their faith and to consider their walk with the Lord and to consider the race that they no doubt are running. And so right here in the middle, before he, he seemingly takes a little bit of a sidestep and inserts this very important and applicable teaching to his readers then and certainly to us today, we, we have this verse number eight that's going to carry us all the way through this section down through verse number 16 of who Jesus is, his character, his person, his work. He is the same 
Yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And so I want to, to make sure we read and engage with these verses 9 through 16 through the lens of verse number 8. So I want you to remember that, to carry verse 8 as we work our way through this section. There's great hope for us this morning in this reality that Jesus never changes. In a world that is changing at every turn, in a world that is defined by change and, and evolution and every uh, cycle of, of politics and every uh, current event, it's, it's marked by change and tolerance and relativity, pluralism, acceptance. But Jesus is that North Star. Never changing, always the same. Charles Spurgeon once said, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the immutability of the Godhead. The doctrine of the immutability of God becomes a critical truth for believers to understand and remember why, because everything else around us is changing. Ideas, concepts, philosophies, other religions, what should be settled based on the absolute truth of God's word is now fluid based on the progressive movement of relativity in this postmodern world, marriage, gender, sexuality. What is concrete based off the truth of God's word and what was in many ways held as concrete from society and culture, all of these things are now abstract ideas. They're to be worked out in the mind and the eyes of the beholder. Truth is relative. So in an ever-changing world, we need that sure and steady anchor that will hold us fast to the truth of God's word. Our author would contend that, only, that the only source for this type of stability and, and consistency, the only source for this type of unchanging hope, it is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in our, our text right here in Hebrews 13, the author proposes the solution... And they lay, then he lays out the reason, and he does so in terms of a command. Verse number 9. Look with me there. Hebrews chapter number 13, verse number 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. In an effort to really be sure this warning hits home for his readers, the author once again is going to appeal to their Jewish understanding of this Levitical priesthood. And with the backdrop of the, the tabernacle, the day of atonement, priests and sacrifices, we have this command to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. What is the author really warning them against? He's warning them against Drift. Drift. 
What is drift? Typically, when one deconstructs or succumbs to apostasy or even just compromises on a core doctrine of the faith, it's typically a slow fade. But if we follow these breadcrumbs of of falling away, we, we often find that the starting point looks something like entertaining, diverse, and strange teachings. So this admonition is nothing to glance over at the end of this letter. By God's grace, we should, we should sit up, so to speak, in our hearts, in our minds, and we should hear the word of the Lord with urgency and intentionality. So what is drift? Drift is defined as being carried slowly away by a current of water. Being slowly carried away by a current of water. Of water. Typically, drift isn't immediately recognized. It remains unnoticed and undetected until it's many times too late to recover. One such story concerning drift in a body of water Hosea, Salvadoran fisherman who spent 13 months adrift at sea. He was the first person in recorded history to have survived a small boat, literally a recreational two-person boat for more than a year. On November 17, 2012, Jose set off on a professional fishing trip with a young fisherman named Cordoba, with whom he had, he had never worked before. And having embarked from the fishing village on the Pacific coast of Mexico's southern state, they planned to be out to sea for only about a day. It's an overnight fishing trip, attempting to catch shark, tuna, mahi-mahi, other fish to sell at the market. A few hours into their voyage, a storm struck. It lasted five days. It blew them off course. Jose called his boss on the ship's radio for help, but it and much of the rest of the boat's electronics had been disabled by the storm. The boat's motor was damaged. A search party was sent, but after two days of relentless searching, authorities and the boss of the company gave up, assuming that they had drowned in this small recreational boat. Alone, without food and supplies, these two fishermen survived by eating raw fish, jellyfish, turtles. They drank rainwater. As weeks turned into months, Cordoba, unfortunately, became severely ill because of eating this raw food, ended up passing away and dying. Jose endured another nine months alone at sea until he eventually spotted a small island. Giving a a last-ditch effort, he abandoned his boat, swam to shore, and almost immediately he met a, a local couple who alerted authorities. He had reached the Marshall Islands. His journey had lasted 438 days. His voyage is estimated to have covered between 5,500 miles to 6,700 miles in total, adrift at sea, being carried slowly away day by day. Incredible story. Although Jose experienced physical and literal drift, off course, unplanned circumstances, changed the course of this man's life, 
ultimately taking the life of another fisherman. Spiritually speaking, there can be equal, if not greater consequences if we allow spiritual drift to slip into our life. And so that sure and steady anchor for our soul is Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so he is the anchor that we look to this morning as we work our way through this section of Hebrews chapter number 13. So the big idea of our text is this. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, but instead run to and identify with Christ who never changes. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, but instead run to and identify with Christ who never changes. We look at three simple points this morning. The first is this. Jesus is better than the seduction of knowledge. Jesus is better than the seduction of knowledge. We see that in verse number nine, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christianity, in turn, should be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know that's not the case. We, we see all kinds of controversies. We see all types of, of, of rabbit trails and, and apostasy and, and heresy and poor doctrine and theology that's introduced specifically in our American church. And it all begins with the slow and steady drift that's entertained by allowing diverse and strange teachings into our life as individuals and into the church corporately within the body of Christ. As a general rule, we should be skeptical of significant moves and shifts in the Christian faith. Why? It's not because we're stuck in our ways and unwilling to change with the times. But in reality, we should be skeptical of significant moves and shifts in the Christian faith because we are actually stuck in our ways and unwilling to change with the times. This is the whole point of preservation and perseverance. This is the whole point of endurance in the faith. This is the whole message of Hebrews, that Jesus is better, and he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. For over 2,000 years, the gospel has been settled, recorded in scriptures, and preserved and translated for us in our English language, and it is immutable. It is never changing. It's not, no matter what society does or thinks or how they change and evolve over time, God's word never changes. And its truth is timeless. The gospel is relevant His redemptive plan is working itself out in every generation, just as God has planned. And what does he use? His timeless word, unchanging Christ, the settled gospel as recorded in the scriptures. But our author calls us to not be led away. It's a call to be aware of our surroundings, to always be checking our coordinates and and recalibrate back to the gospel. It's a warning against drift. 
In this letter of Hebrews, the warnings have been frequent and severe. Some within their fellowship and gathering had been drifting. Some had fallen away. Some had stopped running. Some had not endured in the race. And as such, they had succumbed to apostasy and revealed that they had never truly known the gospel. They were tares among the wheat. They were goats among sheep. They never truly had faith in the finished work of Jesus. They were trusting in their old religious system. They had gone back to the familiar, to the safety, to the acceptance, to the mainstream Jewish life. They had revealed that they went out from us. Why? Because they were never of us. I could not be more excited about this series of Colossians. I'm going to read a passage in chapter number 2. Maybe to give us a little taste and look forward to this particular topic carrying forward in a few weeks. Colossians chapter number 2, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, this is our theme verse that we're going to use throughout our series. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Look down with me at verse number 16 of Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This warning against drift comes by way of identifying the culprit. What is the culprit of this theological drift that the author has in mind here. It is these strange and diverse teachings. It is other teachings and these two specific adjectives that describe these teachings of diverse and strange help us understand the severity of these teachings that are being entertained. They are diverse and they are strange. Although the author doesn't specifically call out what these diverse and strange teachings are, we know in that day many were already denying 
The incarnation of Jesus and the practice of asceticism and other false teachers were rising up, promoting other gospels for for selfish gain. So that said, the immediate context to follow would indicate that our author has teachings that would stem from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law. He would have that in mind right here in chapter number 13. This potentially could be referring to the Old Testament kosher dietary laws of Leviticus 11, but many also believe that it is likely referring to the food and rituals associated directly with this sacrificial system that we've taken months to unfold as we've looked at this reality that Jesus is better, that there is a better tabernacle, that there is a better altar, there's a better sacrifice with better promises. All the truths that we have unfolded through this this series, its, its backdrop has been the tabernacle, right? The sacrificial system of the law. These laws and rituals and restrictions were originally given as a means to demonstrate the distinctness of God's people from the world around them. But what was the value? What was the purpose? You remember Hebrews chapter number 9, verse number 10, reminding us of what our author has already said about the old covenant rituals, laws, sacrificial system. Hebrews 9, verse number 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed, here's the phrase, until the time of reformation. So this old covenant, this sacrificial system had value and purpose and had a role in the life of uh, Israel only until the time of reformation. Hebrews 8 verse number 13 and speaking of a new covenant, he meaning Christ makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews chapter number three, verse number 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This was the the warning against apostasy, was having this evil and unbelieving heart. What was the evil and unbelieving heart of chapter three? It was the leaving the, the, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and reverting back to Judaism and, and placing your hope and faith in this obsolete sacrificial system that has no value. It has no role. Jesus has come. He's abolished this old covenant and he has established a new covenant through his blood. These Jewish Christians have been saved out of a lifetime of immersion in the practices of Old Testament Judaism. As such, many may have been shocked to hear these foods and rituals being described as diverse and strange. So why would our author be so bold? Because he understands that although these good things in their rightful time and place were just but shadows, pointing to something better, looking to someone better, namely Jesus Christ. These diverse and strange teachings were always just setting the stage. And in and of themselves, they had no ability to save. Only Jesus. 
So our author calls them strange because they were clinging to these regulations that God had established for a time, and they were establishing them now as if they were intended to continue indefinitely. You could call this a a hybrid faith. It was not grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. They were seeking to add to Christ. Jesus wasn't enough. I I needed to have my religion. I needed to have these rituals. I needed to, to, to maintain the past. But here, the author of Hebrews is calling for radical abandonment. Clinging to the gospel only. Do we see this in our day, friends? Just a little bit of Jesus with whatever else you want to trust in and hope in. How about a little power of positive thinking? Oh, of course, yeah, and Jesus. How about a little whatever philosophy of the day? And, and oh, yeah, and I go to church. How about a little health, wealth, and prosperity? God helps those who help themselves. How about, hey, I just do more good things and good works, and my good works outweigh my bad works. And, and oh, yeah, of, of course, Jesus is sprinkled in there as well. Friends, Jesus was never intended to be an appetizer. He was never intended to be a garnish on the plate. Jesus was meant to be in his entirety our only hope. I wonder this this morning, are you trusting completely and only in the person and work of Jesus? So now under the new covenant, the blood of Christ Jesus himself stands as the means by which God's people are set apart from the world. Their identity is no longer as a a Jewish individual, but rather as a Christian. This Old Testament sacrificial system, it it had no, no right or role or value in their life at all. Their distinguishing mark from the world that God had placed them in was no longer the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood. No, it it was Christ and him crucified. This is how God's people were now set apart from the world and the gospel completes and replaces this law in an exchange. In exchange, what did Christ offer? Grace. No longer law, no longer old covenant, no longer ritual and and food restrictions, no longer this this burdensome law that was to be kept and followed and adhered to. We are now under grace. And this is the beautiful hope that we have here. And this was the light that the author of Hebrews was pointing his readers to. The contrast here. It was between the old covenant restrictions and the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as seen and experienced through his grace. 
Our author goes on and proclaims that it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. In Christ, grace is the only means by which we are strengthened. Just as these Jewish readers are, are, were tempted to go back to the old way of the dietary laws and restrictions, the, the priestly sacrificial system, we too are tempted to overemphasize external compliance as a means of self-righteousness and acceptance of God. Friends, we need to remember this morning that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Grace is better. The gospel is better. My self-righteousness, my knowledge, my wisdom, my understanding, my religion have no benefit Regardless of the measure of devotion, sincerity, and good works of kindness, apart from the grace of Christ, they have no ability to establish, is the idea that by that word of strengthened. They have no ability to strengthen or establish or confirm or to quicken our hearts to salvation. Only God's grace can do that work. You remember Ephesians chapter number four, verse number 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." The centrality of the gospel. Christ preeminent here in Hebrews. Also in Ephesians and Colossians. We see the centrality of Christ in the gospel as he is our only hope. Can you relate to that old Christian song, that old hymn of the faith? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. This is the danger. This is drift that comes as we open our ears to diverse and strange teachings. The antidote is the gospel. It's grace. It's radical abandonment of everything else and trusting in Jesus alone. So Jesus is better than the seduction of knowledge and my own wisdom, my own understanding, my own way. Point number two, Jesus is better than the security of acceptance. Jesus is better than the security of acceptance. What was vogue in that day for his readers was the strict adherence and compliance to the Levitical priestly system, towing the line to the law of Judaism. This was popular. This is what was accepted by the masses. And with these masses, there was, there was safety. There was security. There was stability that would come 
in the life of those that were a part of these masses. And so the contrast between grace and ritualism would continue to build as our author carries on this imagery of the tabernacle and tent, and now he layers into this discussion of the altar. And it's here that he shifts from the warning to an affirmation. If these foods and rituals have no ability to strengthen or establish our hearts, what or whom does? Verse number 10, look with me there. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The author here is establishing this reality that there is a different and a better altar than even that of the Levitical priest. It's here that the author demonstrates that the tables have now been turned. Under the old covenant, there was a limitation of access for whom? The people of God. Do you remember this? Only the high priest could go in to the most holies and offer that sacrifice on the day of atonement. Only the priest could enter in and offer sacrifices for sin. Here the author points out that the dilemma of access has been resolved for those walking in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now the access limitation is now shifted to those that are trusting in something else or someone else other than Jesus. Yes, even the priests that are still operating here in our text under an obsolete old covenant are not even able to eat from this altar of grace. Why? Because, again, they are hoping and trusting in another gospel. They are walking in these diverse and strange teachings. Hoping, trusting placing their faith in something or someone else other than Jesus. And our author would have his readers then, and for us today, he would have us to know and to remember that there is a better altar. So therefore, don't be led astray. Don't, don't open your ears. Don't give way to diverse and strange teachings. Rather, remember Christ. Rather, look to Jesus Rather, remember, Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray. And here the author will carry on this tabernacle language in verses 11 through 13 and draw out, I think, some really important nuances concerning Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Specifically, these verses will highlight, once again, we've talked about it even through our Advent series, the doctrine of imputation as the sins of the people would have been what imputed or transferred to the animals. They would have then been subsequently sacrificed as a temporary atonement for sin under that old covenant system. Do you remember? We've talked about this at length in previous weeks and months. Well, what would happen to that sacrifice that was presented before the Lord? The priests would... Um, certainly feast on that as well, eat, and that would be part of their, their main uh, substance there. But once that was all done and the sacrificial system played out, 
That remaining carcass would be carried outside of the camp and outside of the gates, ultimately for that, that carcass to be burned and, and discarded. And to do so, to work through that process of taking care of that carcass, to do that within the gate would have defiled the city with the stench and, and smoke of that not-so-pleasant process of taking care of a carcass that had been imputed with the sins of God's people. So not only is there a better altar in this passage, but it's here that the author is establishing the superiority of the better sacrifice of Jesus. So the connection to Jesus and his sacrifice becomes more clear as we look at the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. So they took Jesus. This is the crucifixion scene. Here in John 19. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was also written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And the sovereignty and providence of God, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So the place of Golgotha was near the city. And we know clearly that this crucifixion scene would have been outside of the gate. And he suffered this reproach and shame with a purpose. What was that purpose? Why would, why would Jesus do this? Why would he come and take on flesh and, and call disciples and establish an earthly ministry and, and deploy signs, miracles, and wonders? Why, why, would he, why would he establish this earthly ministry only to give up his life and go to a cross and, and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary? Why would Jesus do this? Because it's, that's why he came. Because he is the once for all sacrifice that abolished the old covenant and established the new covenant in his blood. The blood that was shed there at Golgotha. And what did it accomplish? Verse number 12, look with me there, Hebrews 13. What did it accomplish? He did this in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. To sanctify the people through his own blood. It, it draws my attention back to Hebrews chapter number 10. Verse number 8 through 14, when he said above this quotation, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Speaking of Christ, 
He does away with the first, the old covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. Verse 10, and and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Praise God. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Oh, what beautiful hope. What beautiful hope that we have, that we don't have to be encumbered by the burden of a frequent and over and over repeatedly giving sacrifice for our sins, hoping to earn favor in the eyes of God, but by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can be sure that our sins forgiven. And not only have our sins been imputed to Christ, but his righteousness in turn has been imputed to us. And when God the Father looks at us, he no longer sees broken relationship caused by sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And his son that is sitting at the right hand of God the Father for all time, he welcomes us as sons and daughters the firstborn right along with Jesus, joint heirs of that inheritance with Christ in that eternal city, that eternal kingdom. What great hope there is. He did that so that we could be sanctified, saved, set apart. Jesus not only carried his own cross Outside the gate, but verse number 13, as followers of Jesus, he calls us to carry our cross outside of the gate. And to do what? To identify with Jesus in the reproach that he also endured outside the gate. And friends, this is where the call to consider the gospel becomes very uncomfortable. Easy believism falls to the wayside in passages such as this. The call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus, it's a call to go outside of the gate. And as our author called his readers to go outside of the gate, their image in their mind would be that of Christ outside the gate. That image in their mind would be that of a cross. And that cross was a symbol of death, of suffering, of shame and reproach. And so the author is calling his readers to identify not with popular and comfortable and safe old covenant sacrificial system, not to just blend in and follow the masses. No, Jesus is calling his disciples to not default to the comfortable or the familiar. He's calling them to not shrink back and turn away. He's calling them to come to him, to go outside of the camp, 
to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him there, outside of the city, outside of the gate, to this place of reproach and shame and persecution. And although that cross will bring reproach and persecution and shame and loss, the city that we just walked out of has nothing to offer us. This is what we must remember. What we give up for Christ is of of temporal value. It will not last. It will not stand the test of time. So when we walk out of that city and we look to Jesus and we radically abandon all that we have and all we could bring and all that we could trust or achieve or hope in, when we say no to that and we say yes to Jesus and we go to Jesus following in his example outside of the gate. We remember verse number 14, for here we have no lasting city, but rather we seek a better city the city that is to come. Our hope then is not in the fading city of of mankind and the, the hope and security and safety and comforts of this world. It's in the promised eternal city of chapter number 12. Do you remember it? Not an earthly Mount Sinai, but a, a heavenly Mount Zion where the assembly of the firstborn will gather, those enrolled in heaven, every nation, every tongue, every tribe will gather there in that eternal city that is to come, and we will worship the Lord for all eternity. Across the lands, Christ will be known, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But until then, point number three, Remember that Jesus is better. Therefore, offer a sacrifice of praise. Time is fleeting, and I'll attempt to be brief here. Jesus has given us just a foretaste of what is to come, and just as the redeemed will worship the Lord there, until then we are called to worship the Lord here. Verses 15 and 16, through him. Do you hear those two words? Through him, meaning Christ. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest. He's made a way, representing us perfectly before the Father. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Not continually offer up a sacrifice for favor toward God, as the Levitical priests were doing repeatedly. But now the sacrifice is not one of burnt sacrifices and animals for temporary atonement. Now the the repeated sacrifice is one of what? Praise and worship. Through him, we offer a sacrifice of praise and worship to the Lord. What does that look like? It looks like the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do you see that verse number 15? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The Jesus that is in our life 
and the Jesus that has saved us. The Jesus that is on our our hearts and our minds should be the Jesus that is on our lips. Speaking about Jesus is one of the clearest ways that we can willingly identify with him outside of the gate. Speak of what happened outside of the gate. Speak of the cross. Let the fruit of our lips speak the gospel in our homes, with our spouse, with our kids, with our kids, training, discipling them and understanding the gospel should speak and acknowledge Jesus in the church, outside of the church, in the marketplace of life, in the workplace, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our schools, at the gas station, in the grocery store, wherever we are and whenever it is, the fruit of the lips of one who is truly in Christ will acknowledge the name of Jesus and be willing to take on the reproach that Jesus himself bore outside of the gate. So friends, I wonder, is the gospel on your lips? Do we just affirm it in our heart and do we just affirm it on a doctrinal statement? When was the last time we herald the good news to a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member? Repent and believe the gospel. How are the words of the gospel on our lips? Verse number 16, we can also do this through what? Good works and hospitality and and kindness. These sacrifices, our author says, are pleasing to God. Quickly in closing, I'll point our attention to Matthew chapter number 5, verses 14 through 16, the Sermon on the Mount. Christ says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, rather. And it gives light to all in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Praise, worship, gratitude in previous chapters have been spoken about. Has the gospel impacted your life, your heart, your mind to the point where you truly believe that Jesus did come and take on flesh? Do you, do you actually believe that the God of the universe came and was born of a virgin and lived a perfect and sinless life? Do you really believe that Jesus went to a cross and shed his blood to atone for your sin? Do you really believe that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God literally raised him up from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, do you actually believe that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And so we actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the gospel would be on our lips. We would proclaim the hope of Jesus at every waking moment. Why? Because it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgments, and then eternity. 
And friends, I wonder, has the gospel gripped our heart? Do we know the gospel personally? Have you worked out your own salvation with fear and trembling? And if you know Jesus by grace, through faith in Christ alone, I wonder what's holding us back from sharing that with others? What's holding us back from going outside of the gate and identifying with the Jesus of the scriptures? What's holding us back from identifying with the gospel and receiving that reproach and that shame and that loss? Is it climbing the corporate ladder? Is it pursuing another zero on the end of your bank account? Are you enamored with the things of the world, the temporal things that fade away? Young people, are you worked up with having the right logo on your clothes or having the right phone in your pocket or having the right styles so that you can be accepted as cool? Husband, father, are you chasing the rat race of keeping up with the Joneses? Mom, maybe it's the endless cycle of succumbing to what the world says you should be as a woman, should look like and act like. I don't know what it is. I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit this morning. But I wonder, is the Holy Spirit stirring your heart to consider what is keeping us from truly identifying with the gospel? And if we reverse engineer this all the way back up at verse number nine, if the words of Christ are not on our lips, if praise and worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not evident in our life, then we probably have succumbed to diverse and strange teachings. So I pray that the soberness of this message would actually produce in us incredible gospel freedom and gospel fruit as we consider what Jesus is calling us to, and that's discipleship. He says, if any man come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Would you join me in prayer this morning? I think of, again, the old hymn, when we see Jesus, the chorus reads, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse at his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings and instead run to and identify with Christ who never changes. Jesus is better than knowledge. He's better than the security of acceptance. He's better. Therefore, offer a sacrifice not to earn favor in the eyes of God, but rather because Jesus is better and he has saved you, offer a sacrifice of praise this morning. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, I pray that you would do a work. Make us like Christ. Your Holy Spirit would stir us, change us, We plead in Jesus' name, amen.